0: yes i am yes i am That's... Cool. <laughs> we definitely got to open with that all right hello and welcome once again or for the first time to black magic treehouse the podcast and this is the podcast where everything you want to know about it you can find via the card catalog at your local public library the reference section in particular feel like that one was kind of on the nose, but I'm sticking with it because I can't think of anything else.
1: I liked it. It made me dewy in my decimal.
0: Well, that's definitely going to earn us an explicit rating for for this episode, I'm afraid. So we, uh, we overshare here in the Treehouse. Uh, the things that we really like to share, uh, first of all, is our names. That's something we usually like to start with. My name is Jose, and I'm one of the co-hosts. And I'm joined by our other co-host
1: over here. I'm Eric. And I'm immediately going to derail you, Jose, even though I'm sure you had a whole plan worked out for how to get us into this episode. Nope, nope. Go (laughs) ahead. Well, um, a funny thing happened uh, on our way to the podcast. Um, It's not really funny. Paul Rubens died. uh, And I think that we killed him because... In our episode about Freaky Stories, mm. which was recorded, what, in like May or something? Um, yeah, May. Yeah. You segued into talking about Fox Family by being um, ambushed by Pee Wee's Playhouse. At, you know, the wee hours of night creeping into dawn. And uh, I edited and posted that episode like at the end of July. And then like within two days, Mr. Rubens passed away. So I just thought, I know we got rid of the the idea of top of the show topics because it did always spin out into this like 20 minute conversation that had no bearing on the rest of the episode. But I thought because of, you know, our personal connection to Paul Rubens and Pee Wee Herman and the podcast's possible responsibility in his uh, mortal shuffling off this coil. And also the fact that Paul Rubens was, you know, semi-connected to the horror scene through like, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, and uh, what was the other example? I had? Oh, obviously he was a voice in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas.
0: Yeah, uh, a number of Tim Burton projects.
1: We could do, and I'm gonna set a timer here because I don't want this to take, you know, the 20 <laughs> minutes it used to. But um, I just thought we could say a couple words about you know how we feel about Mr. Paul Rubens and his his legacy that he left behind.
0: Indeed. Um, well, what I can say for that is, uh, I know we touched on it already when we talked about, uh, Pee-Wee's Playhouse during the Freaky Stories episode, because that was my first exposure to the Fox Family Channel, but of course also to, uh, Pee-Wee Herman, and it wasn't necessarily a lasting impact on my own childhood so much as, um, you know, just, just, just... something that kind of came out of nowhere like a like a rocketing comet from outer space and it uh you know it left an impression on me but it wasn't necessarily that i became a fan overnight or sought him out intentionally afterward but um i wasn't prepared for this eric
1: (laughs) sorry i can go ahead and say the thing that i was gonna say Which is no, that's
0: okay. Yeah, you go ahead. Um, I let me just let me just jump in, and uh, Uh you know to kind of tie up my end of it. Um, and you know we can you can of course edit this to make it so much more seamless than it is right now.
1: Oh, thanks for making more work for me.
0: No, no, of course. Uh, well, just to say that I really appreciate you giving a nod to uh, Mr. Rubens, uh, especially since yeah, I don't I don't know what what hand we might have played in in this crazy thing we call life and death. But, uh, yeah, the timing was kind of strange, and he will be missed, is what I can say for my part.
1: Wait. Don't I get a last request? Why not? Yeah, he was only 70, which is... My parents have just both turned 60. And that's sort of weird to me because like, you know how you move the goalposts as you get older for what is like old, you know, like when I was 10, I thought 50 was old. And now that I'm 30, I'm like "Ah, old doesn't start till you're like 75 at least. Um, So it is sort of weird as my parents are entering into their 60s. Whenever somebody dies, like for some reason, the primary one in my brain is Stan Winston. Uh, He was, like, 66 when he died. I remember that being the first one where I was really like, oh, people can die in their 60s. That's, like, that's the plausible start of the time that people might die. And my parents are entering into that now. So I'm like, that's weird. Um, But uh, the thing that's really interesting to me about Pee Wee Herman as a character is that... Like, I think I grew up with him because of Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. Like, I think I backed into being a Pee-Wee fan through being a Tim Burton fan. And you take Pee-Wee for granted when you're a kid because it's just like, oh, it's a silly guy. And that's kind of all you need. But as you get older and you learn more about the mechanics of, like, how a comedic character is crafted, you can usually trace it back to, like, the idea like a lot of sketch comedy characters are like, this is a person we all know this, you know, like Kristen makes target lady or whatever. Um, or it's like, what if this type of person who wouldn't normally be in X type of situation was in X? Like I was thinking recently, like every character that Mike Myers had on SNL in the nineties was like, what if such and such a person had a talk show, but there's really nothing high concept about Pee Wee Herman. He's not, grounded in our reality in like any way he's like I guess you would call him a man child but it's not like Martin Short is like Clifford or something Mm -hmm. it's just so I, I wonder like how do you even conceive of a character like that or understand that it's going to play to an audience or be funny as opposed to just being baffling when you come out as a clearly grown man with kind of a weird voice and like a red bow tie and a lot of prop humor what, what ties all those characteristics together? So the fact that he made this unified character that lasted for, you know, 30 years is like a testament to his very off-kilter sensibility that mm-hmm. he was able to, like, wiggle into the mainstream somehow. Any thoughts on that? I'll give you 20 seconds.
0: Okay, thanks. I would say <laughs> that, you know, you use the phrase man-child earlier i i and since his passing you know i've been reading these uh you know articles obituaries whatever you'd like to call them and they recount the fact and then also archival videos of paul rubens they recount how Wee herman was essentially created like the seed so to speak was kind, kind of what you were saying you know uh, an snl type concept like, what if there was a stand up comedian who was terrible at memorizing his jokes and could never get the punchline to land? And apparently, that was born of Ruben's own, you know, uh, fumblings with with that particular format. Uh, it was just kind of amplified in the character of Huey Herman. And that just seems strange to me based on what he ended up becoming because you say man-child the thing that he strikes me as in the persona of Huey Herman is what if one of the marionette characters from a show like Howdy Judy was transformed into a person you know like a, a like a uh, kind of Pinocchio type situation and it does seem so strange Based on
1: that. that such a character. <laughs> all right, time's up.
0: Okay, thank you. That's what I was
1: gonna say. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. Seven minutes. I think we can get on to the rest of the episode. Rest in peace, Paul Rubens. Thank you for yeah. apparently everybody shares stories of him being a super kind person and all that, so Obviously, we lost a, a wonderful human being, as a, and in addition to a good creative comedic force. Anyway, what are we talking about in our podcast today, Jose, besides Paul Rubans?
0: Well, uh, we primarily here up in the Black Magic Treehouse tend to focus on what we call creepy kid culture, which I guess you could lump uh, somebody like Pee Wee Herman into if you were so inclined. But for our part, It encompasses things more along the lines of uh, horror media made for kids. And Eric and I, being the age that we are, this tends to be media that was produced and released about the time of the 80s and 90s, the early aughts, thereabouts. But we do go older, and in episodes to come, we do uh, go even more uh, contemporary with our selections but we're kind of honing our vision on all of that weird shuddery stuff that uh we read and watched and listened to as monster loving kids and uh you know what 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 is this i'm terrible when it comes to like this all these labels are 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 we gen x are we gen y z what what are we what are we supposed to be
1: i am a millennial I think you are too, actually. Okay, I am. Uh,
0: I yeah, am closer to
1: geriatric millennial. Cause I was born '87.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So you're like you're like my wife. You're an old millennial. I'm i I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like a middle aged millennial. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. So speaking of things that uh, we watched and read and consumed voraciously as kids, I know. Uh, Good Transition. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Eric and I are not so terribly old, even though he is an old millennial. But we're not so young that we had the the instantaneous, the instant gratification of the internet always at our beck and call throughout our childhood. Certainly not to the extent that... Uh, websites like youtube especially lend modern viewers uh, that you're able to basically just summon up any kind of uh film oh boy here we go anyway all right YouTube. time's up let's, let's end it at that yeah oh my god oh my god here we go this is the worst i like the of power the of
1: just being able to cut you off as because yeah. of some arbitrary rule i make myself about a timer
0: well, you have that license now because you are the full-time editor of the show. So the you're power. Like, nope. Yep, <laughs> you're like a Jafar at the end of Aladdin.
1: <laughs> we're coded in.
0: Yeah, in in genie form. Anyway, but we're not so young that we do not. We're not so young that we have forgotten that there was a time when you wanted to find out something particularly about movies your options were very limited and in fact the most likely place you were going to find information about movies, movies you had either seen and got lost to the sands of time or ones that you always pined for the one place that you had at your fingertips was the public library and its vast storage of printed words. So, naturally, our subject for today is reference books. Wow, I thought there would be more. <laughs> I thought I'd be able to seamlessly this again <laughs> to the next thing, but here we are. Anyway, reference books. What do we mean when we say reference books? We mean now, if you're of a certain age, this may seem like a strange concept to you, but there are still, of course, reference books for film, television, and basically everything else. But reference books usually came in the form of. Oh boy, oh boy, I'm talking about what a reference book is. Whew. <laughs> Yeah, reference books are Wikipedia but in printed form, and usually if you were looking at these as a kid, they'd be definitely on the shorter side, typically no more than, I would say, not even 50 pages sometimes, Uh, but they gave you enough, enough of a taste of what you were looking for, and uh, some of the most valuable resources in these reference books were the photographs that would be included because again before the time of youtube and any kind of uh, instantaneous video sharing that you could obtain online that was the most that you were going to see of what the movie actually looked like so we just wanted to take some time to We just wanted to take some time to parse through some of our most uh, memorable, our most loved reference books of our childhood. And who knows, perhaps some of these also provided you with the information that you were seeking as a horror-loving kid. So, Eric, let me start by asking... Sure. Would... (laughs) How much of a place... Would you say that reference books of any kind, but in particular relating to the horror genre as a whole or horror film specifically, would you say that you were a pretty voracious reader of them or was it just kind of like a fleeting thing here and there?
1: I don't know if I would say voracious, but I'll tell you a story that I've told you before on mic because it is recorded in our Sinister Spotlight uh, catalog, back catalog. Whoa, deep cut. The the way that I found out about Universal Monsters is because of Full House. um, To go back to being a geriatric Mm -hmm. millennial, there is an episode of Full House where Danny is away, and Joey and Uncle Jesse let Stephanie stay up and watch the Wolf Man on TV, and they show like a two second clip, probably from the movie of like Lon Chaney walking up to the camera in wolf makeup obviously and growling like it is from the very end where he's chasing the love interest through the swamp Mm -hmm. and the point of the episode is that stephanie gets scared and then they give her the you know simple homily of like just make it funny in your mind and then you won't be afraid anymore um but that didn't work for me i was just terrified so but i think every i think every horror fan probably has that experience of like You see something that you can't quite handle, but instead of swearing off horror movies forever, you become like weirdly fascinated by it. Does that resonate with you? Mm. Yeah, so that was my moment Uh, with that. And oh, I thought that was all the answer (laughs) I needed.
0: Sorry, I I think it's the lag, you know, my mm was to something (laughs) else. (laughs) In any case, yeah, go ahead and continue
1: yeah so anyway that was my entry point and so i was too scared to actually watch the movies which did exist on vhs at the time um if i had wanted to seek them out but like i'm not trying to paint a portrait of like i was growing up in the 60s where it's like only if they show it again in the matinee screening can you see any movie ever um right (laughs) but i was too afraid like and that was back when amc actually showed movies so they were on rotation pretty frequently on TV. So I could have watched him if I wanted to, but I was too scared, but I was also fascinated. So that's kind of where reference books came in for me is like in that age, like probably like six to like 10 or 11 when I was like fascinated by horror movies and wanted to know. And that was also the era of like when Scream and all the nineties Neo slashers came out, my sister, who's a year older than me would watch them. And then I would like beg her for like, give me every single plot detail of that movie. So I knew who the kill killers, spoilers were in Scream, <laughs> like, you know, years before I ever sat down and watched the movie. Um, and yeah, so these books were just a way for me to be able to like engage with and get like a, a glimpse of the Universal movies and other horror movies too. Uh, but the ones that I remember primarily are these ones that I think we have a shared memory of, which is these Crestwood books with orange covers um, with which have like photos and like summaries of the, the franchises and then like updates like um, Universal's take on Frankenstein. Here's a summary of the novel. Here's pictures from the Peter Cushing adaptation. Here's a TV, you know, they like summarize, tell you what the differences are between the stories and most importantly, give you the black and white photographs to kind of, you know, sate your imagination while you're waiting to grow up enough to be able to actually watch the film.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I would say my experience was a little bit um, the opposite of yours where uh, to kind of give you a sense of how I came to the universal monsters. It was also via the television uh, also via a totally separate entity slash show you know, not the thing itself, um, and it's so funny. I don't, I don't remember that anecdote um, about Full House that you shared in our <laughs> previous podcast from years ago, but I enjoyed hearing it. Um, so thank you for reviving that. But there used to be an animated, shall we say, sketch show um, called Hysteria. Does that ring a bell?
1: Was that? Unlike a double bill with Eek the Cat,
0: it might have been, or like Uh, the
1: same people or whatever.
0: I I don't know Eek the Cat, but it was like one of the WB shows. Um, it was, and yeah, it was spelled like it was supposed to be a play on the word history because the whole idea was, oh, we're gonna recount you know these historical moments, but everything is silly. And I, I remember that, like a big baby in a stinky diaper figured some, I don't know if it was a recurring character or their mascot, <laughs> but you know, that kind of gives you a, a clue as to, you know, the sophistication of the humor, but you know, what would you expect? I want to say it was like part of the whole, uh, it was, uh, like a, uh, an Animaniac spinoff. Like it was that same, uh, tiny tunes type style. Um, but anyway, Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah,
1: yeah. The creator I just looked it up. The creator is Tom Ruger, who was, I don't know if he created Animaniacs, but he was a writer. And I think he was a voice actor also who did um, Freakazoid, which is, my hot take is oh, yes. Freakazoid is like the lesser known show that followed up Tiny Toons and Animaniacs with all that same animation team. And it is superior.
0: <gasps> what? I know. Hmm. That sounds like it may need further discussion and dissection. In a future episode. Freakazoid sounds like it's freaky. I've never seen it. Um, So perhaps we'll save that for another day. But in any case. uh, It's actually not horror
1: related at all. It's like a superhero parody show. It is Uh, good that well. He does have kind of Bride of Frankenstein hair. If anybody remembers Freakazoid. Yeah it was like a superhero parody. um, It was just very. It kind of felt like. Sorry to go off on a tangent already. Um, (laughs) Too late. It was kind of like, you know, how like when Tim Burton makes a lot of money with the first Batman and they're like, OK, just do whatever you want. And you get <laughs> a movie like Batman Returns. Yeah. You know, where it's just like, oh, we didn't mean do whatever you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's kind of how Freakazoid felt was like the people had built up goodwill with the WB through like the success of Tiny Toons and Animaniacs. So WB was just like, well, again, Warner Brothers who also did Batman Returns was just like, Uh, just go create whatever show you want. And then they created Freakazoid and the network was like, "Um, one season is enough for this, right?
0: (laughs) We didn't need any more. Hmm. All right. Well, now I got to backpedal all all the way back to hysteria. So let me jump in my DeLorean and uh, let's go back to hysteria. So one of the segments of hysteria was like a dating game style sketch and one of the eligible bachelors, for some reason, was the Phantom of the Opera. And so I'm sitting, once again, fatefully, on my uh, grandparents' couch. Uh, same scenario, different house than when the exact same thing happened to me with Pee Wee's Playhouse on the Fox Family Channel. But I see this segment, there's the Phantom, half-mask, you know, floating down the subterranean lake in his little boat, and just that sparked something in me. I'm like, huh, that guy looks kind of cool. So I went up to my grandma, and I'm like, hey, who's this Phantom of the Opera? What can you tell me about him? And she recounted, like, the whole plot to the Claude Rains version from 1943 that involved, you know, the splashing of acid, you know, kind of like a a Two-Face origin story for that version.
1: Yeah, Technicolor one yeah uh, unlike all the other universal monster movies of the time,
0: indeed, so that was and that ended up being my entry point to the Universal Monsters, which is probably the strangest movie, well, maybe not the strangest, but not the one that most people would suspect uh to lead into you know a, a greater fascination with the rest of the universal stable um but yeah, we rented it from Blockbuster, and that was it, you know, we were off to the races after that. Uh so anyway I had the fascination and I had the experience watching the movies, you know, shortly after that. It was Frankenstein, it was Dracula, which I fell asleep to, and like <laughs> one of my friends that I watched it with had to recount what happened at the end of the movie. And you know, he explained to me, Oh yeah, they stake Dracula through the heart and you know, kill him. And in my mind I'm like, Oh man, I miss the best, like most bloodiest action packed part of the movie. And then of course when you watch you know the 1931 version of Dracula. it's like oh what I actually missed was nothing except Bela yeah. Lugosi's anguished screams from off camera <laughs> but you know as a kid you don't know that um and then, you know, I started consuming the rest and, you know, it went so far with my love for these movies that I would like write down the, you know, the storylines. I would basically, I was making my own Crestwood house books, you know, on my line, no paper. And I also roped my siblings into doing a series of home movies with me all in one night. Oh, actually two nights over a course of two nights where we just recreated as many of the Universal Monster movies as we could. Um, And what was hilarious about that point in my life, this was like second grade, what was hilarious about that was that at that time that we did that, the Phantom of the Opera was the only one of the movies that I had actually seen So for like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Bride of Frankenstein, I made up what happened in those movies. And, you know, in in the sense that um, falling asleep at the end of Dracula and thinking, oh boy, I missed this action-packed thing. I basically filled in my version of of these movies with events like that. Uh, If I recall... The creature from the Black Lagoon was killed when the hero in my version ripped off one of the fins that he had on his head. Spoiler alert, the (laughs) creature from the Black Lagoon doesn't have a fin on his head, but mine did. And then the hero stabbed him in the heart with that fin And uh, Bride of Frankenstein, something similar happened where, you know, Frankenstein's bride had the power to like shoot electric bolts from her hands. And, you know, first she kills the doctor and then she kills the monster. And that's just like this big bloodbath at the end.
1: Where are these tapes now? Do they still exist?
0: They still exist. Uh, they need to be Ooh. digitized. Yeah, that would be Yeah, fun... that's good. That's
1: got to go up on our YouTube channel.
0: Yeah, that would be a fun extra feature <laughs> for the podcast, I'm sure. Man, um... I'm
1: jealous that you have siblings that would do that with you because, <laughs> like I said, my sister was into horror know. movies. But I think there were a lot of projects that I tried to initiate in that <laughs> vein uh, that just never. nobody ever would commit Uh-oh. to it
0: <laughs> Well as you mentioned in a previous episode You and uh Well you said it was your sister and a friend that made those boss Are you afraid of the dark recreations In the basement
1: No my sister was not involved with that
0: Oh okay But that's still really cool though
1: She's a quitter
0: She is Jeez, Not gonna have her on the show that's for sure Yeah really <laughs> So yeah the the obsession with these movies Was well ingrained in me by the time I uh, I came across the, the Crestwood House books and, and reference books in general. So for me, instead of kind of filling uh, an empty well, kind of like they were for you, they were holding me over until I could either see these other movies or frankly, I was, you know, I, w- I was a, a dyed-in-the-wool monster kid by the time I found them. So it was just like this joyous moment. In fact, I, I I remember it distinctly. I uh, for for a literal and figurative hot minute, I lived in Arizona for yeah like not even a month, uh, but it was like the first month, month and a half of my third grade year. And um, what I can tell you about the school is that we would line up on the basketball courts outside in the morning. My classroom was in a portable and the other most important thing I can tell you about that school was that it had, to my recollection, the most beautiful media center uh, that I've ever encountered in the sense that, you know, how you have those stereotypical libraries that you see in movies and TV shows that have the sliding ladders and mm-hmm. the shelves that go up to the ceilings. Now, was that really the case for the media center in Arizona? Who can say? But my God, I can tell you that I've dreamed about this place in all the years since. And in my mind's eye, that's what this place looked like. I know at the very least that it had two levels. Like there was a ramp that you took to the lower part of the media center, and then it had, like, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, <laughs>
1: Jose is gesticulating wildly, just narrating for the audience.
0: Yes, please make sure we translate that. Thank you. Um, but but it had an upper part, um, you know, with a, a it, it was a gated upper part, you know, just so like kids wouldn't fall and kill themselves, I guess. Um, but that is where I found the Crestwood House Monster books like I can, it's all so clear in my mind, you know, except the words (laughs) clearly that are associated with some of these things. Uh, But it was on the lower level. And you know, this, this place was just packed with books. Um, And you know, as a kid, that's pro- that was probably like kind of a cool thing, especially if you were somebody who was already into books. But being a media specialist now in, in my current profession, you know, I think back to that and I just shake my head like, oh, man, that place should have been like weeded vigorously. <laughs> it should not have looked like that. But uh, that does explain why I happened across the Crestwood House monster books, because these things were originally published in the late 70s and early 80s. And mind you, it's not uncommon to find things like that of that vintage and even older in modern media centers. If uh <laughs> if you ever happen to be looking for a good time and want to uh follow any of like the media specialist Facebook groups that are out there, you can see their adventures in weeding posts and some of these folks have like books from the 60s and even older on their shelves. It's kind of incredible. Um, What time capsules, media centers in particular, you know, sometimes not even so much public libraries, media centers, I think, have them beat by a country mile with just uh, the antiques that they have on their shelves, frankly.
1: I'm definitely picturing a bunch of kids in the sweltering heat, like just sweat (laughs) pouring down their faces, doing like a musical number as they're sliding along on the ladders of the bookstores. You know, like Matilda style, but like terrible <laughs> and oppressive.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. It was it was glorious, though, I got to admit. I dream about that place. But for the, <laughs>
1: anybody who's listening who doesn't know what the Crestwood books are, because I don't think I would have known them by the title, the Crestwood mm-hmm. books. If you remember books from the library, you know, you might remember these if you were a monster kid. Books from the libraries that had very distinctive i remember orange covers but um james Rolfe, mm-hmm. aka the angry video game nerd aka you know cinema massacre did a video about these like probably like 10 or 15 years ago and there's also ones that have purple covers which i have no memory of but if you want a, a refresher on what these books are and the general aesthetic of what they look like uh you can look up that video on youtube
0: and you can also uh, Eric and I were just discussing this because uh, as it turns out, this is probably going to become a uh, massively useful resource slash reference just to tie it back uh, for us in the form of uh, Open Library actually has many if not all of the original Crestwood House monster books um, digitally preserved, and um. Uh, clicking slash thumbing my way through one of them now and boy let me tell you this brings back some memories for sure um just the the faded yellow paper uh the specific photographs like I'm looking through the one for the wolfman right now which starts with a uh a, a summarization of the Wolfman, 1941, with Lon Chaney. But then uh, as the book goes on, it also recounts uh, 1935's Werewolf of London with Henry Hull and company. And that was probably one of the features of these books that just made my soul sing so much, was that they recount the plots to these movies in narrative form, so it's almost as if you're reading the movie over the course of a dozen or so pages, so like looking at this one page for Werewolf of London, uh, let's see what we got here, it says, however, the werewolf was only stunned by Paul's blow, it leaped up, snarling, Lisa, kill Lisa, I guess that's Was that what the werewolf was saying? Was that what it was thinking? The book doesn't say either way, Uh, but it says, Glendon's wife had come into the garden. Now she fled back into the house, followed by the werewolf. Footsteps came pounding up the walk in answer to Lisa's screams. It was the police from Scotland Yard. Just as the werewolf's claws reached out for Lisa, there was a shot! The man-wolf staggered and slowly fell to the floor at the foot of the stairs. Lisa stared at the beast, terrified. Even as she watched, another look came over her face. The werewolf was changing into her husband. So if you were a kid, uh, you know, when these books were initially published, of course, late 70s, early 80s, but even if you were a kid like me... Coming across these in the late 90s, this was such a boon. To you because yes, like you know, Eric said, maybe these movies were being played on AMC that October, or maybe they were available at your local blockbuster or Hollywood video. That's where I got most of mine. Uh, And this was just a great, slight tangent. This was just such a great time to be a fan of these movies uh, because it's when those gloriously painted uh, covers for the VHS releases of the universal monsters were in circulation uh so those really just speaking of leaping werewolves those just leaped at you from the video store shelves uh so it was uh it was a wonderful wonderful time to be a fan of the universal monsters uh this was also around the time i think where they made uh the stamp they made the u.s postage stamps with the oh, monsters yeah. likenesses you remember that
1: I had, yeah, I had uh, a series of posters that were like those images. Yes, that's um, right. Blown up to like, you know, 11 by, well, probably wasn't even, it was probably like 8 by 10 or whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my mom definitely kept me uh, fed on Universal Monster stuff. Like, um, speaking of Hollywood video, they would always have like the cardboard cutouts of like Bella Mm Lugosi as Dracula. And then they would like Photoshop a copy of the VHS into his hand. And he would be looking at it like, hmm, how uncanny and strange. Uh, my mom was the sort of person who would go into Hollywood Video and be like, so what do you do with these cardboard cutouts when October is over? And they would be like, uh, we just throw them away. She was like, oh, look, well, can I have them? So we had a couple of them like hanging on the, the landing or not the landing, but the staircase to the basement. We had them like uh, tacked up onto the walls with, you know, like Beatles paraphernalia and stuff about texas which is not where we lived to where my mom is from it was just a collage of all of our oh and i think we had a bugs funny too that was like oh well. you know life size in that same cardboard cutout manner
0: that's incredible and i imagine that those wonderful cutouts have since met their maker in in the
1: dumpster of time no doubt i assume so yeah my parents moved out of my childhood home like I don't know like 8 years ago and there's a ton of stuff that I I'm like oh man I'm so sad that I lost cuz I was also <laughs> living in you know frequently moving between apartments at that time so I think they gave me the opportunity to collect a lot of stuff and I was just like I don't have any room for this uh the mm. things that makes me saddest is I used to have a giant VHS collection of stuff I recorded off the TV and that's all just oh yeah in a yeah in a landfill somewhere I'm like, oh man, if I could have oh, access man. to all of those nineties commercials, I'd never have depression again.
0: I know. Well, that's, thank God for YouTube. I mean, even though we're talking of a time when that didn't exist, but, uh, oh yeah, I'm, I definitely, it's, and it's, I don't know. It says, I guess it's just, uh, you know, a nostalgic bomb for your nerves, but I definitely queue up. A nineties era commercial compilation on YouTube every now and then. the fresh maker <laughs> nothing like capitalism to <laughs> set set my nerves at ease
1: totally um what was i gonna say oh but anyway speaking of the reference books i think a big part of the appeal of them was you're talking about having to fill in plot details with your imagination mm-hmm. so like yeah when these books were giving you like a five paragraph summary of an entire movie and then like a couple of tantalizing photographs that was, it was like creating this whole, like almost like a dream in your brain of like, Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need all the connective tissue, which I think if I had watched Universal Monster movies when I was six, I probably would have spent like an hour of them being like, when do we get to the monster? This is boring. (laughs) But when you just get like the highlight reel of like this five paragraph summary that just gives you all the action beats and then like a black and white, super high contrast photo like production still from Jack Pierce's mm-hmm. makeup chair or whatever, like it makes this movie in your head that like, and I love the universal monster movies now. Um So I'm not like saying that they're boring or whatever as an adult. Uh But it just like, it makes this movie in your head that like the real thing, like almost can't really compare to.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, what can compare to, Tearing off the creature from the Black Lagoon's pen and stabbing <laughs> him with it. Nothing. Uh, well, you know what? Let's segue from that to say that I love the uh, the cute little final page of these Crestwood House books. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's basically
1: that. It, like, apart from apart from the orange covers, this <laughs> this little um, <laughs> it's not an epilogue, but this little it's adorable uh, this mo- this uh, advertisement for other books in the series is like. That was the thing that most immediately brought me back to like picking these up off the shelf and like flipping through these yellowing pages.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the final page is basically like the Crestwood House Monster Catalog. So you got the Crestwood House uh, logo at the bottom of the page, at the top. And, you know, the best famous Monsters of Filmland esque font is the word monsters, all drippy and gooey. And then you have your litany of uh titles from the series there to the right but then hanging from the left of the page is our friend king kong and he's got a speech bubble that says i suggest you read about my friends <laughs> and i just think that's the cutest thing ever and and it looks like i now i don't know if I, I i would assume this was a genuine pose from like a, a production still but here on the crestwood house Catalog page, he has a definite thumbs up, a definite opposable thumb up, <laughs> just kind of cheering us on to check out his friends and all these other awesome books from Crestwood House. Uh, so, yeah, it's just adorable taken all together.
1: Yeah, and I have, I'm paging through the Frankenstein one on Open Library, and the other um, books listed in the series are Dracula. Godzilla, King Kong, Frankenstein, Mad Scientists, The Wolf Man. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Because, like I said, there's purple books that James Rolfe talks about, I don't remember, that I think were more like they cover one specific movie, whereas these were more overviews of like an entire franchise or monster. Um, do you remember any yeah, besides? The one-
0: yeah well the one that i'm looking at for the wolfman uh goes on to list and i think you're right about you know those the specificity of later entries in the series cuz uh, after the wolfman here um also it it lists well okay so it lists a couple um that i think weren't included in what you said just now so i have the blob uh king kong and then it goes down after the ones you mentioned. The Deadly Mantis, The Invisible Man, It Came From Outer Space, The Phantom of the Opera. Uh, that was, I think, probably the first one that I took out of that media center, fittingly enough, since I had seen that movie. Uh, Frankenstein Meets Wolf. Frankenstein meets Wolfman, not The Wolfman. Uh, the Murders in the Rue Morgue, real deep cut there. And Creature from the Black Lagoon. Nice. So, yeah, a nice array of the Universal Catalog, ranging from their earliest chillers from the 30s to their Atomic Age horrors from the 50s. Uh, This is a bit of a segue, but hey, you're listening to Black Magic Treehouse, the podcast of segues. Uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to get your thoughts on... I would, I would call it the divide between 30s, 40s horror films as they were popularly known at the time and the so-called Atomic Age 50s era, quote-unquote horror films or sci-fi horror films. Were you decidedly of one camp or the other? Did you love both? Or what, what are your thoughts just kind of concerning the two in general?
1: The two being 30s and 40s versus
0: 50s? Yeah, essentially. Okay. Uh,
1: yeah, I I vastly prefer 30s and 40s. I mean, my favorite universal monster movie is Bride of Frankenstein. Not an original choice, mm. but it is my favorite. Sorry. <laughs> um, but I love, like, I think from that era, 30s and 40s, especially the 30s, because it was so primitive and not as primitive as people who don't watch movies from the thirties think it was, but definitely Dracula. When Mm. you said you fell asleep during Dracula, I was like, yeah, no surprise. (laughs) Dracula is, (laughs) I'm sorry, (laughs) Todd Browning. I love Todd Browning's other movies. I love his silent movies. I love, Mm. you know, devil doll with, uh, uh, what's his name? Lionel Barrymore. Like he has so many fun, crazy wild movies, but Dracula is so stodgy. It is. Oh, man! Mm. It is just not a good one um but after that, after and I think it was a victim of technology and budget because it was very stage bound based on like the play of the mm-hmm. era that was popular and I think by the time that was a success, that sort of opened the door for Universal and Carl Lindley to justify bigger budgets for these movies and a little bit more expensive worlds um so I think from yeah Frankenstein through the, the mid to late forties. I mean, probably Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was sort of the death knell of that type of Gothic horror before they tried mm-hmm. to make things more contemporary and more topical with a creature from the black lagoon. Um, I love the, I just love the cinematography. I love the, you know, the old kind of soft focus lenses that they were using um and like the the film grain and like the way that they lit it to be like yeah, super shadowy and expressionistic and like high contrast they do feel like i already used the term dreamlike i think they were just like the most dreamlike films because of like the the hiss and the crackle and the static of the sound and and the this you know i guess we would call it nowadays like lo-fi cinematography um, that was almost if you know uh, about uh the overview of photography, there was a movement called pictorialism in like at basically at the dawn of photography, which was like emulating the soft lighting style of paintings. Um and mm. who what's that guy's name that we've both have talked about before? Like William Moore Mortenson. something or other? William Mortensen, yeah. yeah. Look up William Mortensen, everybody. Um who just has these like crazy soft focus, like basically mm-hmm. like photography that's like emulating, you know, pulp uh, magazine covers from the era. And I just love that style because I think horror movies for me, at least are at their best when they're somewhat dreamlike, which is maybe why like the seventies and eighties are kind of my least favorite era of horror. Cause I feel like that was the most like social commentary realism eras, but uh I think the thirties to me just encapsulates that kind of Grand Guignol like almost surrealist level of of dreamlike imagery that doesn't need to be justified by I don't know, like uh nightmare on Elm Street, like actual literal incorporating of dreams into do you know what I mean?
0: No, definitely. And I, I would agree with everything that you said. Um, I guess it just comes down to what, you know, it, it, I guess you could say, you know, are you type A or type B personality when it comes to these things? Cause I guess there is a personality type or, you know, an inclination that leads one to prefer slash just enjoy overall the atomic age horrors. But honestly, for me, I... I, I want to know who those people are because I, I don't know that people who consider themselves horror fans would necessarily like those movies, but I don't know people who would consider themselves sci-fi fans who would also enjoy those movies. You know what I mean? Cause they're like mm-hmm. on the lower, they're on the lower end And just, yeah, in comparison to the things that you were saying, they're so antiseptic and there's no room for dreaming or fantasy in those movies. It is the thing that it says it is. It's an it's, you know, uh, a tarantula that's been exposed to radiation and is, you know, stomping across the desert. And, you know, there's there's a certain appeal to those images, you know, uh, like uh, them, for example, is is a pretty effective movie, um, and you know has moments of suspense and you know genuine craft. But overall, the, those movies, you know, they don't register with me as being um, as being horror movies. Frankly, they're just you know they're they are part of the milieu of uh, just being monster movies. Uh, I, I could see you know, fans of, um, you know, kids who grew up liking Godzilla enjoying those movies, but those kids won't, wouldn't necessarily be horror fans. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, totally. And I, I think that my, my enjoyment of, of that era, the atomic age era is kind of directly proportional to the quality of the movie, or maybe I should say inversely proportional. Mm-hmm. Cause I think the better the movies are, <laughs> oh, okay. the more I'm like, uh okay, fine. We're making a statement here, whatever, but I kinda like the um <laughs> I like the uh you know kind of cheese cakey like fifties version of titillation where like the female scientist who doesn't do anything sciency throughout the entire movie is like <laughs> changing into her nightgown and then you see the eye of the giant creature looking in the, out throughout the window, <laughs> like I think those are fun and. And speaking of images, one thing yeah. that I do remember about, shoot, which one was it? The one where they're in the Antarctic and they and they wake in the giant lizard thingy. Do you remember which one that is?
0: I think it's the Deadly Mantis. I no, think you're wrong.
1: But um, it's the same filmmaker who oh, did okay, uh, cool. It Came From Beneath the Sea, I think. Because uh, I, I keep thinking okay. of the giant Gila monster, and then I'm like, no, that's the one they showed on Mystery Science Theater. But it was a giant lizard <laughs> that like attacked a city at the end.
0: Oh, oh, oh! Sorry, beasts from Twenty Thousand Phantoms. That's the one. Fathoms, beasts from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. Yeah. Yes, thank you. That is the one. Definitely, the saving grace of an Atomic Age horror movie is the question: What is the monster made with? And if the answer is, oh, it's a stop motion creature then yeah I'm all in because any chance especially the beast of from 20,000 fathoms that is uh such a beautifully articulated creature you know as practically all of Ray Harryhausen's creations were um and yeah just this I mean I know I just said that, well, you know, I don't think real horror fans like these movies <laughs> as much as maybe they purport to.
1: Uh, Jose's gatekeeping all of us.
0: I don't know if I sound sounded like I, I was made of stone, but I am not made of stone when it comes to seeing the beast from 20,000 Fathoms lay waste to a cityscape. Are you kidding me? Sign and, me up.
1: Yeah, and I think that there is a certain... I don't know if it's lack of awareness. It feels like a lack of awareness or like people stumbling backwards into like almost surrealist art through these like (laughs) kind of drive-in movies. But that I brought up that one in particular, because it has this very strange climax where the guys like they're going to shoot, you know, some kind of irradiated something into the monster to like overload its whatever. And, Kill it. Um Protons. They, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> something like that. Uh just to step up from like, you know, robots in Victorian novels that are like, oh, there's like Quicksilver and magnets. Uh, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um but they like put on these like um like hazmat suits or like radiation suits and get on a roller coaster to get up high enough. Yeah. And it's such, like, that image of, like, these guys in radiation suit on a roller coaster is, like, such an evocative, surreal image of, like, Atomic Age paranoia. That's So, I think that's kind of the thing that I like from Atomic Age movies, that they don't all necessarily, you know, the Burt I. Gordon movies or whatever, don't necessarily get in anything that, like, even accidentally uh creative. True enough.
0: True enough. So despite what I said earlier, um, asking what Eric's preferences are, mm-hmm. far be it for me to turn my nose up at uh, at any one school of the genre and say that, well, I mean, we did kind of say that one is superior to the other, but superior only in our own personal preferences for the reasons that we stated. Um, so something I can also let you know that media center from Arizona was a wonderful gift not just for bestowing the Crestwood House monster books on me and sating my appetite in between you know the moments I was able to uh actually watch the movies um oh, real quick something I seem to remember doing which you know I guess as a current media specialist I'm like oh the horror but I feel like I definitely use the pencil, at least, to check off the titles from the back of the book that either I had gotten from the media center already and read, or, you know, did I circle? I, f- I feel like I have a memory of, like, sitting out in the the desert-like <laughs> backyard of um, the my mother's friend's house that we were staying at in a lawn chair and circling some titles or crossing out certain ones, checking them off, uh so yeah that was a thing I did to property that was not mine. Anyway, there was another book, uh a single volume from that media center that I came across uh and I'm holding a copy in my hands. This is not the one from Arizona. This one uh is from the Vineyard Haven Public Library in Vineyard Haven, Massachusetts. And it's got a discard stamp on it, so we know that it was weeded from the collection. And it's got, in pencil, up here in the corner, uh, 25 cents. So it looks like they resold it at uh, one of their library book book sales. But it is called Movie Monsters and Their Masters, The Birth of the Horror Film by, pause for effect, Robert Quackenbush.
1: Quackenbush, I always love that last name. That was a. There's a book called um, a separate piece that I read in high school, and we had, like we had a unit where we had to choose a book and then like give a review in front of the class. And I remember the only other girl in class who read that book hated it, and one of her cr- criticisms was that one of the characters' names was Quackenbush. And I was like, No, that's what makes it great. What are you talking about?
0: It's a great name. It definitely registers with me as like I can see Groucho Marx being named Quackenbush in one of the Marx Brothers movies.
1: Oh yeah, definitely.
0: I feel like he might have been, but I I I can't verify right now. <laughs> but uh, Robert Quackenbush was a pretty prolific author. I say was because I don't think the man is still with us. Apologies if that's not the case. Um, he wrote tons and tons of books, nonfiction as well as fiction. Um, some of his series are still in print because I've come across new editions of them. at the Well, I came across them at the public library where I previously worked. Um, but he did the Miss Mallard series of Mysteries for Children... Which is about, yes, a duck who solves crimes. You can't do
1: that when your last name is Quackenbush. Now I doubt that it was even his real name.
0: I know. So Robert Quackenbush had an interesting style about him. Um, I think it actually says somewhere here in this book, you know, how it does sometimes for... Uh, they they do this even in in modern books where it actually tells you, oh, the illustrations in this book were created with dot 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 uh, this form of this medium here. Like, looking at them, I feel like they're pencil and maybe charcoal, it almost looks like. Uh, But I actually took, um, what's the word? I scanned some of the images in this book years ago when uh, Black Magic Treehouse was actually going to be a blog instead of mm-hmm. a podcast. Uh, so I'll definitely, we'll definitely post these images to our Instagram or anywhere else we can, so that they are not all for naught.
1: Follow us on Insta.
0: Yeah, follow us on Insta, uh, Black Magic Treehouse Pod. Um, so the way the book is set up is that one, like on each spread as they call it in the biz. The right hand is Robert Quackenbush's illustration, and on the left hand is the essentially the summary-slash-history for that given movie or character. Um, but the really cute thing... I could have sworn I made a scan of this because it's so unique, but apparently I didn't, and that makes me sad. On the left-hand side, with the plot summary and history of the film the bottom left corner is a quick caricature of the actor portraying that monster. So for instance, I'm going to send you the image from the right hand side for one of the spreads, which is John Barrymore's rendition of Edward Hyde from one of the popular stills of that film.
1: (laughs) very 70s album cover
0: isn't it yeah that's a great that's a great description um but yeah on the so that's the right hand side of the spread on the left hand side is the text and then in the bottom i'll I'll hold it up so you can see it in the bottom corner is a little caricature with an authentic i don't know signature of the actor
1: An autograph, you might call
0: it. Yeah, an autograph, as they call it in the biz. So, yeah, it's kind of charming.
1: Charming, indeed.
0: And some of them are interesting, because it's not always necessarily the actor who portrayed the monster. Like here, for instance, talking about Nosferatu, Count Orlok. Ooh, there he is on the ship. Real. It's F.W. Murr now.
1: Oh, Huh. I
0: wonder why. Yeah. Go go figure. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's kinda arbitrary. Oh, what else who else makes an appearance in this book, somewhat interestingly? Is
1: oh, Metropolis. Dr. Rotwang and uh Yep. And Fritz Lang. And there's the
0: monocle wearing Fritz Lang. And some of the likenesses the likenesses of the monsters, you know, the The characters from the films are pretty spot on. Like, I love this one of Chaney from Phantom of the Opera. That's a good one. I mean, pretty damn good. And I love, I love the green coloring. I think it's, uh, so I know um, our friends who are listening to this right now can't see But um, these illustrations of Robert Quackenbushes, they have a green tint to them in almost the kind of same style that you would see, like a, a tinted segment from a silent film. And it's just like this kind of pea soup, pukey, green cast that all of these monsters have. Same for the actual production stills that they have in the book, sprinkled here and there. And I think it's such a perfect choice for the subject i think that color serves horror well personally
1: and pukey is right
0: yeah oh and this is cute so the spread for the mummy in the corner it has a little jack pierce making up a little boris Karloff.
1: oh that is cute
0: (laughs) that is so adorable uh but yeah some of the likenesses of the um of the film crew, film actors are pretty good. Like I'd say, that's a pretty good Frederick March for uh, for his spread on Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. And the caption next to the picture for uh, Frederick March's Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, it says, um, "To see how Frederick Mark looks as both Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, cover up either side of the portrait with your hand." Eric. Yes, Jose. Do you know how long I sat there? Doing that with this book and being just fascinated as a third grader, with like, oh, now he's Dr. Jekyll, <gasps> now he's Mr. Hyde, <laughs> now he's both, now he's Mr. Hyde again. How long? Talking about, um, too long. Talking about lo-fi thrills, but like yeah. I said, some of the likenesses are pretty good. Like that Frederick March was was pretty was pretty spot on. Some of the exclusions feel kind of hurtful like here's a here's a spread for a Bela Lugosi's Dracula there he is carrying Helen Chandler down uh the the broad staircase of Carfax Abbey um I don't know if you could see it but as far as likenesses go that's a shitty Bela Lugosi he's got like
1: a crew cut it looks like yeah
0: which is probably almost kind of like peewee herman hair to bring a full circle <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to add insult to injury i don't know maybe it was better off being that way since the the likeness of bela lugosi is so terrible in the in the right hand spread there he does not warrant a spot wow yeah like especially in the, i mean that's hurtful uh, especially considering that's Bela Lugosi. Like, come on, that guy didn't get enough of a shaft in, in life that you can't even yeah. afford him a spot on the page of your juvenile reference
1: book. When you told me uh, the topic of this episode yesterday, I thought of three things. Obviously, the Crestwood books were the first thing I thought of. And then there was one that I used to like check out. A lot at my local library when I was like nine or ten. I don't even remember what it was called. It was like just like the Encyclopedia of Monsters or some generic title like that. And it had it was just like an A to Z listing of like different movie monsters. I think that one was probably the newest of a lot of the things that I read because uh, it had references to like Rambo. Uh, it had like these kind of ink. Illustrations. Um there was one section okay. that was like purported to be an interview, maybe inspired by interview with the vampire. But it was like this is an interview with the real live vampire, and it was like just a female vampire and like full of lots of puns and stuff. Um oh, nice. And it had references to like painters who were like some medieval painter who painted like horrifying scenes of monsters and stuff like that. That one was very intriguing. Hmm. Um anyway, that's not even what I was gonna talk about what I was going to talk about was this series right here. Do you remember? Shock shots. Shock shots. Yeah. So I think that these I've talked before to you, maybe on the podcast, maybe not about thrills and chills magazine, which we're going to do an episode about someday. And I think these shock shots were like came as part of the same, like, Goosebumps fan club, or whatever it was in the early 90s. Um, and they're these little, uh, like basically like receipt sized books from Scholastic. Um, shock shots, everyone covers a different monster. The one that I have is uh, about vampires. I remember there were also there was one about ghosts, there was one about zombies. Um, And, yeah, they're just a recap of, like, the actual mythology of the monster. Mm. And then they have, like anything else, they have, like, pictures from... What is this black-and-white picture from? Might be from Dark Shadows, I don't know. But it's captioned, The most popular way to kill a vampire? Drive a wooden stake through its heart. Uh, And they're cool because... It does look familiar. Yeah, the zombies one I remember was green. The ghost one was gray. I think there was one about Frankenstein Um, and they're interesting in that, like, like the Crestwood books, they talk about, um, you know, the old movies, but they also talk about newer movies like this one has references to lost boys. And they, they have lots of interesting tidbits about the actual mythology that I, a lot of them are like details that stuck in my head that I never came across in any other, like, book about vampire mythology like this one goes into detail about like when you're staking a vampire you know there were certain kinds of wood that were supposed to be more effective than others like i think the wood from the ash tree or whatever and you're supposed to drive in the blow of the stake with a grave digger shovel and you're only supposed to drive it in once if you if you uh hit it more than one time it won't be effective and if there's, you know, creatures crawling away from the coffin, like bugs or whatever, you know, throw them into the fire. So it's like, they're small books. They're like, this one that I have is 44 pages that are, like I said, about the size of, um, I don't know what what size. We just, it's like half as tall as my head, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're about the size of the photograph you keep of your kids in your wallet or, you know, your fur, your furry kids.
1: Right. And like, I just happened to flip to the page that has the, the, um, to the death. There came a time when people realized that trying to avoid vampires was like fighting a losing battle. So they decided to try killing the vampires. They use more than one method, but certainly the most popular, most effective method is the old stake in the heart. Here's how it works. One, track down the vampire's coffin (laughs) in the daytime when the vampire is asleep and powerless. Drive a stake through the vampire's heart. A word of caution here, you can't use any old piece of wood for the stake. Many say ash wood is best. Others recommend aspen or hawthorn or oak. And you must use a gravedigger shovel to drive in the stake with one blow. Any more will just make the vampire stronger. Two, hold on to the shovel because the job isn't over yet. You have to also use it to cut off the vampire's head. Stuffing the mouth with garlic first is part of the gruesome ritual. Three, the job's still not over. Now you've got to burn everything in the coffin. Be careful now, because if anything, a worm, a beetle, a snake, or whatever crawls out of the fire, it's got to be thrown back in. It just might be the vampire trying to crawl away in disguise. Um, and then it tells you about like the cultures, like the vampire mythology in other cultures, like the... You know the Chinese vampire that like uh, had green hair, and the one that like sucked blood out of people's like feet or whatever. Um, but anyway, they were really comprehensive for being so small, and they had like lots of those little. Seriously. Yeah, they had lots of those little tidbits, and uh, you know the story of Elizabeth Bathery is in here. Um, and yeah, and they had photos. Dracula in the movies gives you an overview uh fantastic funnies sink your teeth into these vampire jokes. Why did Dracula flunk out of art school? He could only draw blood.
0: <laughs>
1: knock knock. Pretty good. Who's there? Fangs. Fangs who? Fangs you very much for giving blood to a vampire. Hold on. That one's not so good. Yeah, I know. You can see that one coming. Uh, Here's a better one, though. Knock, knock. Who's there? Bats. Bats who? Bats wrong with you. Never open the door to a vampire.
0: I give it one out of three.
1: (laughs) No, you're wrong. I like the... It, It almost breaks the joke, but I like the bats wrong with you because how could you guess what the punchline is going to be when they're making that much of a stretch seriously anyway that's all i to say about shock shots so you may proceed
0: wow those are really neat very cool thank you for yeah sharing that with us i uh like i said they seem vaguely familiar um
1: yeah well speaking of episodes that we can do without a lot of preparation it might be fun to do an episode where we just talk about vampire mythology because over the course of centuries, Mm. there's just so much crazy like little details and things and like, you know, certain ones survive into like Buffy and Twilight or they get like revamped and revamped (laughs) uh, into like, Oh, the reason they have to stay out of the sun is because they sparkle or whatever. Um, But I'm really, I love old vampire mythology. Like before vampires mm. were romantic when they were just like a pestilence. There's something really yeah. fascinating to me about that that kind of mythology. Like before it was sexy, you know? Yeah,
0: that reminds me of um the seed of how uh the film An American Werewolf in London came about. I still recall like hearing John Landis talk about it on some kind of AMC special. But he said they were, like, filming an episode of Hogan's Heroes in Yugoslavia. And he actually witnessed uh, some of the locals burying a corpse headfirst into the ground. And when they inquired why they were doing that, it was that, oh, well, so it can't get up and start walking around and plaguing us all uh, with its vampirism. Uh, And somehow... From that yeah. an American werewolf in London, don't ask me how I don't
1: see the, the a to B there, but no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is no. cool,
0: but uh speaking of monsters, my last book that I was going to bring to our attention today is uh and you can you can cut the part out where I revealed it earlier, so it seems more <laughs> like a surprise now all right, is a tome a veritable tome called The Encyclopedia of Monsters by Jeff Rovin, who, according to the back, a veteran comic book editor, Jeff Rovin, has also served as a consultant to such television series as The Greatest American Hero and Web Woman.
1: What is Web Woman?
0: Among his 30 published books? I have no idea. Sounds
1: potentially interesting.
0: Yeah, that kind of reads to me as he, uh, he was brought on to fill in the gaps in comic book knowledge that staff writers on the earliest superhero uh shows had cuz comic books were not the the den of um you know mainstream culture so it's like uh oh, let's get a hold of somebody who works in comics come talk to us and tell us if we got this web woman thing figured out Uh, But it says, among his 30 published books are the critically acclaimed Encyclopedia of Superheroes and the Encyclopedia of Supervillains, as well as the Superhero Movie and TV Quiz Book, and Winning at Trivial Pursuit. So big trivia facts and stats guy. Um, This book has a beautiful painted cover by... Trying to see if it gives a full name. Ah, yes. Has a beautiful painted cover by Vincent De Fate. De Fati. I'm not sure who that is, but it's a it's a gorgeous rendition of like the Rogues Gallery of Monsters in a fog shrouded cemetery. There's a lovely skull in the corner, uh, all the the monuments in the cemetery are tottering this way and that, and we have uh, what looks to be a wolf man in a sweater, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> a mummy, a really ripped creature from the Black Lagoon slash alien, could be either or both, uh, a Dracula looking fellow, a Frankenstein creature, and um and a Robbie the robot looking i mean the robot in the background is that mm. is that right robbie the robot what's his name from forbidden planet yeah whatever
1: let me see the cover again though
0: it doesn't look like him is exactly that... but that's who he makes me think of
1: oh yep you're right
0: yeah he's yeah got he, he's a lot boxier
1: but it's got the yeah. it's got the 1950s robotic uh computer box aesthetic
0: Yeah. Um, So the Encyclopedia of Monsters is huge. Um, So, for instance, it pulls its entries from a vast amount of, um, shall we say, what do they call it? So what it says is to indicate a source, to indicate source, a parenthetical letter or letters follows the name of every monster that basically tells you where they originated. So we have advertising, comic books, computer and video games, just to give you an idea of when this book came out, folklore, literature, motion pictures, mythology, poetry, religion, the stage. I'd love to know which monsters came from the stage. Oh, that's probably like the one entry for Audrey, uh, Audrey Jr. <laughs> from Little mm, Shop. Yes. Toys. Trading card slash bubblegum cards. I feel like they could have just gone with trading cards and people would have figured that out. And television. So th- these are the sources where Jeff Robin is pulling all of the entries for the various monsters in this huge book. Uh, so he lets you know all the various mediums through which they uh, have proliferate, proliferated over the years, or even if it was just a one and done monster. Those are probably the most, well, maybe not the most fascinating ones, but th- those are perhaps the most telling ones. Uh, this book has a copyright of 1989. So we're looking at 10 years, or just about 10 years beyond movie monsters and their masters. Um, But it's kind of funny for some of the, the single source, single entry ones, it's kind of telling as to what Jeff Robin had readily available around him at that time. And by that, I mean there is a healthy amount of monsters that made appearances in for instance uh, pulp magazines mostly weird tales here and there you'll see one from like fantastic or something like that but i find it kind of funny like what made it in here and what didn't because surely the let's say dozen or so entries that are in here for or two dozen entries that are in here for Um, monsters that originally appeared in stories that were published in Weird Tales are certainly not the only monsters that appeared in stories published in Weird Tales, but that's, you know, I guess those are just the issues that, you know, the New York Public Library had on hand, or Jeff Robin had in his own collection. I'm flipping to one in particular That um, stuck out on my mind when I first read it, just because uh, the summary for the story terrified me. Uh, And I Mm -hmm. came across this book, for context, in middle school. It was in my middle school media center. Uh, I I was a library aide for all three years, because I was a cool kid in middle school. And interestingly enough, this book, the Encyclopedia of Monsters, was in the general nonfiction section. You could check it out, just like any other book, you know, in the 000s with all the other ghosts and monsters. But both the Encyclopedia of Superheroes and the Encyclopedia of Supervillains that Jeff Ravin wrote were in the Media Center's reference section, which means you could not check them out. Which means that for, it seems to me, every day that I was an aide in the media center, I had those two books opened up at the front desk, superheroes and supervillains, and or supervillains, opened up at the front desk, reading them, poring over them religiously, and begging, (laughs) begging the media specialist, Mr. Helensky, and the, the media aide, um, whose name I unfortunately forgot, I'm sorry, ma'am, uh, begging them, please just let me take these books home. Every single year I was there, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, I begged them, please, I just want to check out these books so I can enjoy <laughs> them at home. You know me, you know I'm an aide here, <laughs> I'm going to take care of these books. But they were adamant that reference books did not get checked out and brought home. And uh, clearly I have never forgotten that or let it go. Um, And as an adult, I was forced to acquire a discarded copy via like Amazon of the Encyclopedia of Supervillains and, you know, mentally give a middle finger to Mr. Helinski and, the staff at my middle school public library. I got my own copy now, damn it, and I'll read it whenever I want to.
1: So have you read it cover to cover?
0: I probably read it cover to cover back in middle school. Um in the years since I've just kind of yeah, hopped around leapfrog okay. style to uh, you know, entries that I either remembered or, or wanted to look up. But anyway, like I said, this is a huge they're all huge books. Um So one of the entries that I remember is for The Thing, parentheses, in the cellar. Because you see there are previous entries for The Thing from Inner Space. Uh, The Thing, just, you know, the one from Who Goes There by John W. Campbell that was made into the movies. Uh, So yeah, three things. So this was The Thing in the Cellar, and its first appearance was 1932 in the story called The Thing in the Cellar by David H. Keller from Weird Tales. Uh, so, in the way he gives the species, if it's indicated, uh, which sometimes is just listed as extraterrestrial, he gives the size, if it's listed or indicated, uh, so for a previous entry, it says nearly seven feet tall. He gives the features and powers, uh, describing the physical appearance of these monsters and any cool shit that they can do. And then, uh, the, plot summary he calls the biography of the monster and then there's a comment at the end for any additional notes so the thing in the cellar does not have a species size or features and powers it just has a biography Uh, so the biography reads over some hundreds of years a barricade of junk accumulates in a cellar a cellar separated from the rest of the house by a thick oaken door The Tuckers are the current residents of the old house, and six-year-old Tommy is utterly terrified by the cellar. Even if the door is open just a crack, he will refuse to go in the kitchen. Concerned with the boy's phobia, his parents take him to see Dr. Hawthorne, to whom Tommy confesses that he's afraid because he knows there's something down there. That's all he'll say, and the doctor tells Tommy's father to cure him of his irrational fear by nailing the cellar door open and locking the boy in the kitchen.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
1: That's 1932
0: for you. Yep. We got a fucking depression going on. That kid's going to get over his shit real quick. After the Tuckers <laughs> leave, the doctor consults a colleague who disagrees with the treatment. Having second thoughts himself, Hawthorne goes to the Tucker house to stop them. However, he's too late. Entering the kitchen, they find Tommy torn to pieces. Comment. Nothing is ever revealed about the Thing. Keller's short story is a superb evocation of a child's fear of nameless terrors in the dark. And that's the entry for The Thing in the Cellar from the Encyclopedia of Monsters. Nice. I read that in middle school and was scared shitless.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. It seems like it could have been an inspiration for uh, the boogeyman, Stephen King's yeah, right. short story. I always like a story about, well, okay, I don't always. <laughs> I sometimes like a story about a kid being afraid of something and not being believed, and then it turns out to be real. Yeah,
0: it's like, suck at grown ups. <laughs>
1: I'd say that's a good application. It bothers me in horror movies when they spend too long not having the adults mm. believe the kid. Um, but I think it, that's kind of perfect for a short story format where you can just have a punchline after, you know, 15 pages or whatever.
0: Yeah. So, and there are a good handful of, um, well, as I said, you know, s- entries for monsters that appeared in short stories from the pulps Um I know, like, oh yeah, The Lavender Vine of Death by Don <laughs> Wilcox from Fantastic Adventures. You know, back when stories could just tell you exactly what they were about. Um, the Lavender Vine of Death. There it is. It's, it is what it says on the tin. It has an entry for Leviathan uh, from, you know, biblical lore. Uh, lots of comic books. Uh Everything that I mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah, here we have training cards. The Lunar Lepons. Lepons. From, uh, yeah. I don't know. Mad Balls. Those were, uh, those were apparently a toy. Mad Balls. Mad Balls. Yeah, anthropomorphic balls. Well, three and a quarter inches in diameter. The Mad Balls are rubber balls that bounce. <laughs> so these were toys. Okay. These were. Can you imagine if this book had been made like five years later in the thick of the 90s when like every other toy that came onto the market was some kind of gross monster? I mean, we were talking about all the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle ripoffs. That would have filled an encyclopedia unto itself, right? Um, But I really treasured this book. I still do. Um, It it has um, a really diverse. Clearly, a collection of monsters that, you know, range from, as we said, like extraterrestrial type stuff, uh, folklore. Here's an entry on the Manticore, uh, who's my favorite character from Onward, by the way. Um, Didn't see it. But, uh, yeah, it's a fun one. You should check it out. I've heard that because uh, that came out
1: that came out the same year as like, what was it soul or covid oh well yes that too
0: <laughs> yeah like around like like around there yeah
1: but was it there was two Pixar movies that came out that year and one of them i think it was was it soul that sounds about right one of them was the big prestige one sounds about right yeah and onward was the one that i heard was like nobody cared about it but actually it was better than soul
0: yeah and you know what it's funny like um you know, we were kind of trolling around Disney Plus, like, oh, what haven't we watched yet? You know, we have like a movie night with my daughter on Fridays. And my wife was like, oh, what about Soul? And we played the trailer for it. And afterwards, she was still like, yeah, right. And I'm like, "That I'm not interested in watching that. I yeah. mean, it just, I don't know, it's just like lame. <laughs> it's like very vanilla. I mean, it's like a cute-ish concept, but it looks superbly vanilla uh no thank you but uh, anyway the encyclopedia of monsters um it has entry for like really low-key movies like uh one in the it has an entry for the mad ghoul which was like a second fiddle universal horror film from the 40s um that again i just loved reading about um because it it's like whoa universal made a movie about this it's like uh the the protagonist who becomes the mad ghoul he has to eat human hearts in order to you know basically sustain his unliving state and reading that in a book from 1989 you're like oh man that's like the sickest coolest thing i ever heard i can't wait to see that movie and you know i know i mentioned it around the top of the episode not being disappointed Uh-huh. Coming around to the movies after the fact, I think I might have been a little disappointed with the Mad Ghoul. I mean, I'm sure it's it's fine, you know, it's evocative enough for uh, B uh, picture from Universal. But you know, they got the Mad Monster, which was a you know like one of the monogram movies. So it's really
1: is that like, um,
0: Martians from War of the Worlds?
1: Is that a Lon Chaney one? The Mad.
0: The man Monster, I don't think it was. I think that oh, was... Oh, never a, mind. It's uh, not in the same say that was...
1: milieu as the Pillow of Death or whatever.
0: Oh, well, yeah, right. Well, no, there uh, actually, there's an entry for a Man-Made Monster. Oh, that's what I was thinking which of. Which is the one where yes. he's like, yeah, the electrified convict. Yeah. Yeah, he's in here. He made it. Um, Very good. Oh, um, Medusa is in here. Megalon... The fucking giant cockroach from the Godzilla movie I mean, this is I'm getting like giddy just Thumbing through this thing Because it's just such a rich uh, It's such a rich work
1: Let me ask you for this, Jose mon-
0: For Monster Mad Kids yeah.
1: Are you I know we were talking about Atomic Age Godzilla obviously is an outgrowth of Atomic Age horror But really yeah. his own thing And the whole kaiju genre in general Um, is that yours? Because I've never cared about Godzilla. (laughs) And sometimes I feel like I should.
0: I, no, I don't think you should necessarily. Um, I had a period of time where I was a Godzilla fan. I'd say that was about fourth, fifth grade thereabouts. Uh, I watched quite a few of the movies. Like after I had kind of gotten through all the universal horror films I could from like my local video store. I actually had a tape um and here we are talking about reference uh you know reference books horror reference books we we could probably have a whole nother episode about uh well maybe we could maybe we couldn't I don't know maybe I'm <laughs> alone in this um but documentaries uh, uh-huh. no, we could definitely. Uh, Oh yeah. Um, yeah. There, there were some of those definitely filled the gaps for me and just set my brain on fire. Somehow I acquired a tape of one. I don't even remember what the hell it was called. I just know that the cover had one, it was two pictures. Then they were like both digitally colored. One of them was from Godzilla versus Megalon. Cause it had a Godzilla shaking hands with Jet Jaguar. And then the bottom picture was a close-up of the giant King Kong face. You know, the big robot-looking one that you see in the, the 1933 movie. Uh, I have no idea what the heck it was called, but it was like a monster documentary, a, a monster movie documentary. I remember that was my first exposure to... like, ha- And it was one of those... De- <laughs> it was back in the day when documentary could mean a lot of things and documentary in this case could mean half the movie was commentary and half the movie was just trailers mm-hmm. from these movies oh, man. Yeah. minus any con- my, yeah, minus any context whatsoever and one of those context uh, con- list trailers was a trailer for the green slime are you all familiar with that from 1968 i've heard maps. the title
1: that's it is it japanese yeah it was
0: like a Japanese co-production. Okay. Um it has a theme song that plays during the trailer, The Greens and it's like <laughs> disco. <laughs> it's like a disco song. The green slime. Um...
1: <laughs> Open the door you find the secret.
0: To find the answer is to keep it. Cross your mind, and amidst, um, and it, it was more, it aired more on the side of like alien slash giant monsters, you know, Godzilla. I feel like Godzilla was the centerpiece for this weird compilation documentary thing. And it just kind of discussed, You know, tangential stuff around it. King Kong came up. And what was probably the weirdest thing, one of the weirdest things about it, is that it ended post-credits with, like, this was the special feature on on the tape. It ended with the famous cartoon short, Godzilla Meets Bambi.
1: Directed by John Carpenter. (laughs) Yeah, directed. Which obviously... Yeah, yeah. It wasn't directed by John Carpenter, but that was it was on his IMDB page for like a decade or something for some reason. Really? Yeah.
0: That's interesting. So yeah, I don't know who this who was responsible for this, but it's like one minute a one minute cartoon that's all credits being played over a very peaceful scene of quote unquote Bambi. You know, it's just a nondescript year chewing away at the grass and you know looking around as the credits for this short play like animated by directed by yada yada and as soon as the credits end a giant godzilla foot comes down and squishes bambi and that's the end of the short yep (laughs) and that is what this tape ended with holy crap where how how did we come to this what was your question oh yeah godzilla I don't. oh yeah i think that's i think that's where my fascination was born because i just had this random tape and you know i loved king kong so it's like yeah king kong but then i saw all these godzilla movie trailers and i'm like hmm these seem interesting i like the fact that there's a different monster in every movie it's uh this would have also been right around the time that like pokemon was a thing for the world and for me uh So it kind of had that gotta catch them all vibe to it. Like, oh, gotta check out all of Godzilla's monsters. Uh, It had a trailer for Destroy All Monsters, which blew my mind as a kid. I'm like, this is the greatest gift that cinema (laughs) has ever bestowed upon us. Look at how many monsters are in this one movie and they're all fighting each other. You got Rodan and Mothra and... You know, all these weird ass ones like Angular and Gamera, friend to all children, just like duking it out. But yeah, the thing about Godzilla movies is that they they're all kind of lame. And if.
1: whoa, strong words.
0: Yeah. Well, if you had vague intimations, what you know, like with the Universal monster movies, like, oh, these, you know, I feel like if I watched these when I was six years old, six six years old, I would have been like, oh, this is boring. When are the monsters going to show up? You would have definitely felt that with the Godzilla movies.
1: Yeah, no, I had a friend in elementary school who was super, super into Godzilla. And I think I watched like wow. probably two or three full movies with him, even though I was... I did feel that very much of like, like you don't, I don't hear you talk about how much you love the human characters in this movie. And yet we're sitting here (laughs) for like an hour with no monsters, which is the thing that you love about Mm -hmm. these movies, just being off screen. somewhere. Why? Yeah. Why do you love it? Wouldn't you love it? I I don't know. It feels like a weird, I don't want to shame anybody who loves Godzilla. I'm just too, uh, I don't know, impatient, I guess, to to be able to wait until the end of the movie for like the ten minute wrestling sequence of guys in suits.
0: Yeah, and you know, my fascination slash love—I don't—I don't know if it ever really boiled over into full-on love um, for those movies was pretty much worn thin because it just, you know, started feeling exactly. Like what it was, which was, oh, so this is basically just like Power Rangers, except none of the the, the, uh, the high-speed antics, the high-octane antics that you get compressed into a 20-minute episode. It's stretched out over a period of 90 minutes, and I don't like it at all.
1: Yeah. As an adult, I've seen a couple more. Um, like Destroy All Monsters was one of them. And as I... You know, kind of like when you realize that you like, um, uh, what are they, just like OG Oreos versus double stuff, and it makes you feel like you're an adult. Um, I kind of felt like an adult watching that because I was so much more into the human storyline. And then when Godzilla showed up, I was like, get back to like the people in like weird yellow 1960s jumpsuits, like fist fighting aliens or whatever they're doing in that movie.
0: Not for nothing. Like the human drama in the first Godzilla movie is genuinely interesting, I think.
1: Yeah, the first I mean, one just the
0: first movie in general is better than anything that <laughs> came after
1: it. Probably. I have seen the first one and it is it is so moody and it does a lot of like like giant monsters are not scary because you can always just see him, like he's right there. <laughs> and I think the first movie does a really yeah. good job of like keeping Godzilla like a sound effect. Or like, you know, somebody's like looking out into the rain and there's like, there's a vague shadow of some giant thing coming towards me. Or then you see the aftermath of the city after he's like stomped all over it. And that's when it's like, oh, this is actually pretty creepy in a way that none of the other rubber suited mm-hmm. monsters are.
0: Yeah, like one of the moments from the first movie that is like ingrained in my mind Um was yeah, like you said, you know, sound effect off camera is that shot of the the boat crew, mm-hmm. and all you just see them like in mass, like throwing their arms up, and you hear the roar, and you see that brilliant white light, yeah, of you know Godzilla getting his flame breath on, and you know, not for nothing, it obviously evokes you know different things that also. Give it that resonance. Um, oh yeah, you know, as far as yeah, cultural and historical touchstones, and you don't get creepy with giant monsters all that often.
1: No, you don't. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I asked. I felt like I could ask you that because if you had said you were into Godzilla, I would have been like, okay, I guess we could do an episode someday. But that was—I feel like that kind of was our Godzilla episode because I really don't have anything else to say about it. <laughs>
0: nope, me neither. Uh, so we put a pin in Godzilla. It's interesting that you probably could not have—not saying you can't, you could never—but you probably could not have a modern-day equivalent of a horror movie reference books book for kids. You know what I mean? Because unless you're talking about the universal monster movies or thereabouts everything like you can't, if you can't have a horror movie reference books for kids and include Chucky or Pennywise <laughs> and not talk about the fact that they kill people. No, totally. Um, specifically. So I find or like
1: Hellraiser, you know, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah a pinhead for peewees. Um, <laughs> but I find it so interesting that you know these books for as much as they meant to us they really are a time capsule of and it's funny because when i came across them the the things that they were covering were well out of date it just so happened that you know i was an old soul an old soul who was already into this kind of stuff uh so that even though it was the late 90s you know two plus decades from when these books originally came out um they were still a match for me so in a way i can't help but wonder could could these books themselves be a match for somebody these days is that still possible and by extension could something like them ever exist again could there be horror movie reference books for kids that were not forced to just cover universal movies from the thirties and forties and atomic age horrors from the fifties, you know?
1: Yeah. That's a pretty big question.
0: Yeah. To ask at the two, uh, in, two hour and 12 Mark. So maybe, yeah.
1: Cause it gets me thinking about like the metaphor of monsters over the years and how I, you know, like I said, the seventies is one of my least favorite decades of horror. Not because, you know, like I appreciate the movies of like George Romero, but, you know, I think that's when maybe there was sort of a cultural shift from using monsters to talk about our own sort of internal demons, maybe like, um, you know, people talk a lot about the pathos of universal monsters, about like Frankenstein's mm-hmm. monster being like very childlike and the Wolf Man not being able like being this guy who can't. They're all like metaphors for the things about ourselves that are sort of unprepared to deal with a world that doesn't want to accept, you know, certain parts of humanity. Like if you're too childlike, the world will take advantage of you. Um, if you're a man, you uh, maybe get a little bit monstrous because you don't know how to handle certain aspects of your atavistic, um, predatory, caveman person or what, you know, whatever the metaphors are. Um, and then at a certain point, yeah, during the slasher era, it was just like instead of loving monsters because you felt sympathy with them, it was like you love monsters because, like, yeah, like Freddy Krueger or Jason or just, uh, I guess Jason. I don't know. I don't really have a solid thesis because I guess Jason does have a Phantom <laughs> of the Opera quality to him, um, mm-hmm. and an update in that way. But it's kind of impossible to talk about him without being like. The content of his movies is that he slays teenagers for 90 minutes as opposed to like you can't really write an encyclopedia entry about that in a way that is kid friendly because it does depend on how he cuts people in half with his machete as opposed to, um, yeah, the Phantom of the Opera proper. You know, like he kills a couple of people through the story, but it is an expression of a deeper part of his character as opposed to being the foundation of his character. So, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there are certain modern movies, I was just thinking while you were talking, which means I wasn't listening to you. No. uh, But no, like what you were saying about Jason, especially. Same here. uh, (laughs) I was thinking, you know, are there like modern movie monsters that you could talk about in, uh, you know, a work of juvenile literature without, you know, butting up against this like vicious content and like my mind immediately went to something like the babadook which you know the monster in that movie is kind of like a proper monster um it's identifiable it's kind of unique in its own way and i bet you could touch on the themes that uh that movie encompasses without you know harming any young sensibilities so to speak so <laughs> i don't know i feel like i don't know this may be a challenge that i may wish to take on at some point in the future when i'm not inundated with other projects it's like there's got to be something there like there's got to be a way that you can communicate like the love of horror and, and you know and when i say that i mean like horror media and and monsters from that horror media to modern day kids from modern day media,
1: <laughs> the yeah the Duke would be an interesting. Sorry, if, I think I feel like we're trying to end this episode, and then I just keep being like, "Let me talk for ten minutes about the thing you just said." Um, uh,
0: clearly, I'm the one but, who brought up this this whole <laughs> crazy ass tangent. So, if anybody's at fault, it's me. But you know,
1: well, I'm taking responsibility for it because I'm codependent. <laughs> um, but the Duke is an interesting point of comparison because. I think there is something to be said about the way that it uses a monster as mm-hmm. a metaphor kind of more literally in a lot of ways than like you had a monster like, you know, uh phantom of the opera or the invisible man are kind of operating at a metaphorical level for mental health issues, let's say, but you couldn't really talk about those in the open at all in the twenties and thirties. Um, so you kind of had to let the metaphor be completely subtext, whereas the Babadook is like, it kind of talks about depression while it's talking about using the metaphor of this monster to represent depression in kind of a way that's more like explicit, I guess. Is that? Do you understand what I'm saying?
0: Well, they're more directly tied, especially with, you know, yeah. not to spoil the Babadook, but, you know, especially with the way the movie ends. You know, it's like there's a clear line being made to like, oh, this is a supernatural story about a monster that comes and plagues our lives for 90 plus minutes and pretty much saying with how the movie ends, well, this is, uh, you know, I don't want to say necessarily even an illness, but these are just like the demons from our own lives that we have to live with and learn to control and keep on a short chain and just move on <laughs> even if they're locked in the cellar we just gonna have to move on and carry on our lives the best we can um whereas you know yeah the movies we're talking about from that these horror reference books refer to uh you know the thing dies at the end you know the walls collapse on the phantom uh the invisible man gets shot <laughs> and reappears in the hospital bed and you know cue credits the end it's a universal picture
1: (laughs) the little plane farting around the earth (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that isn't i won't i won't go too much into it because i know we are over two hours but there is probably a whole college thesis in there
0: yeah, for sure. So, if uh, you, the listener, are looking for your next college thesis statement, please feel free to take this and run with it. And uh, you know, if you're just looking to reach out to us and let us know what you think in general, you can reach us at our email address, which is BlackMagicTreehousePod at gmail dot com. And that's actually the same little handle. You can find us on Instagram, BlackMagicTreehousePod. And please do let us know what you th- thought about this episode have is there a bevy of horror reference books that you remember pouring through as a monster obsessed kid whether they were in the form of books or weird trailer compilations that you inexplicably had on vhs for some reason uh let us know and just let us know what you think of the show if you could give us a rating on apple podcasts or a review would be great we'd love to hear from you hear what you're enjoying about the show things you'd like to Hear us cover in the future. Uh, we really want to uh, tailor the show to as broad an audience as
1: possible and to expose ourselves and to things. And time's up. <laughs>